ahead and take a seat. It is so good to be here with you this morning. We're going to continue in our series through the Psalms this summer. So if you have a Bible, grab that and meet me over in Psalm 130. Psalm 130. You know, the world's storehouse of knowledge is increasing at an incredible rate. It's increasing so quickly that you could actually take out your phone right now and Google what I'm saying and fact check me on the spot. It's possible to get knowledge so instantaneously that you don't even have to know anything anymore. You don't need to know how to work out a math equation because Siri will just tell you exactly what you need to know. Man, if Siri existed while I was in school, my grades might have been a little bit better. There's a funny story about Albert Einstein that goes like this. It says one of his colleagues came up to him one time and asked him what his telephone number was. Well, Einstein proceeded to go grab the phone book and look up his number, and his colleague was like, are you serious? You're the smartest guy in the world, and you don't know your telephone number? And he replies, the genius said, why would I memorize something that I can get in a book? Why should we know something when we have instant access to it on our tablet, on our smartphone, where we can just get any information we want at any time? What if knowledge or the access of knowledge hasn't actually made us any smarter? What if all it's done is puff us up? What if all it's done is directed us to the place to where we can access the information, but we actually don't know anything more? Y'all, there isn't a new piece of information in the entire world that my eight-year-old daughter is not confident that she already knows. Matter of fact, whenever I tell her anything, she grabs my phone and presses, hey Siri, because she knows how to use a, a smartphone already. And in the back of my mind, I am praying, Lord Jesus, Siri, please just tell her that the moon is made of cheese. Please just tell her the moon is made of cheese. And at the same exact time, I'm angry because my ego's in check. And I'm like, oh, she just needs to believe me, right? Y'all, we do the same exact thing all the time to God, don't we? We fact check him when a moral decision comes about because we believe that we're more enlightened than God or, or we wonder sometimes why God governs the world the way that he does. Why, why in the midst of everything going on do people have to suffer the way that they do and we think that we can run the universe better than him? Did you know? Did you know that we're learning more information and accessing more knowledge at a rate faster than any other time in the period, any period in the history of the world and yet the Western civilization, the enlightened ones, are leaving God quicker than any other civilization in the history of the world? Y'all, I think that's a problem, and I think it's a problem because knowledge isn't the answer. Knowledge isn't the answer. Today, we can fit more information on a thumb drive than was recorded in the entire library, at the ancient library of Alexandria, where they say that there's estimated between 200,000 and 700,000 volumes of work we can fit more information than that on a thumb drive. Check this out. According to historians, around the year 1900, knowledge was doubling every century. Okay, every 100 years, the cumulative human knowledge doubled. By the end of World War II, they say that knowledge was doubling every 25 years. By the end of 2013, they said it was doubling every 12 months. Every 12 months, every year, human knowledge was cumulatively doubling. They estimate that today, knowledge doubles every single day. And by the end of this year, they estimate that it will double every 12 hours. My question for you is, why aren't we getting any wiser? Why aren't we getting any wiser? We, we seem to have access to all the knowledge in the world, and yet we're not getting any wiser. Watch this, because knowledge has limitations. 
See, knowledge can move your head, but it can't change your heart. Knowledge can't change your heart, and I would tell you that it's in the heart that wisdom is shaped because wisdom is shaped by worship. See, truth and forgiveness is the key to worship, and worship is the beginning of all wisdom according to the Bible. See, that's what you're going to see today. It's a knowledge of God based on an experience with God that changes everything. Listen, it's when you taste and see that the Lord is good that everything changes. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that there's a lot of people in this room, a lot of people in our city, and a lot of people watching online right now that have a lot of access to knowledge. They know a lot about God, and yet there's an empty relationship with God because it's not about knowing all the right information. It's not about having great theology. It's not about any of that stuff. It's taking the theology that you know, the things in your heart or in your head, and moving it so that you lean into God with trust. That's when you become your full self. It's like this. I can know a lot about that chair right there in that front row. I can tell you a lot about it. I can tell you it's ugly. I can tell you that chair was probably built in 1942. I can tell you that that chair will hold me, that, that science will tell you. I can even read the owner's manual of that chair and tell you every little speck about it, but until I sit in that chair, I'll never actually fully know if that chair can hold me. That's what a lot of our faith looks like. A lot of our faith is intellectual. We know a lot about Jesus. We can tell you the nuances of theology. You might be able to tell me about the Trinity. You might be able to tell me about um, salvation, but until you actually take your life and rest or sit on what you know, well, you'll still have an empty faith. Today, I want to show you that knowledge starts to work when you move from understanding to experience. Psalm 130. Listen to what he says. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Y'all, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but one of the things we do know is that the psalmist is hurting. He's done something that has gotten him into a bad place, uh, to a place to where he feels like he's hit rock bottom. That word in Hebrew, the depths, it literally means the lowest ocean. And I've told you this before, when you read the Bible correctly, the ocean is a metaphor for all the uncertainties of life. It's the uncontrollables of life. That's why if you look at Revelation chapter 21, Jesus says that one day when he comes back, the sea will be no more. Not that there's not going to be oceans, but the uncertainty of life is going to be gone. So you look at this Hebrew word where he says, out of the depths, he's telling you, out of the deepest ocean of despair, I cry to you. He has sank to the bottom. He is there, though, because, well, as you're going to see, he did something wrong. So he cries out. Again, sometimes I think that we don't, we don't read the emotion of the Bible enough. We just read that and move on. But you have to understand, he's crying out out of his despair. It's not a casual call for God to save him. It is a cry. It's a yearning. It's a, God, I need you. The other day, Dustin, um, one of our elders, he sent me a podcast about these murder mystery trials going on in South Carolina, which are absolutely crazy. And in one of the podcasts, the dad, he shows up and he finds his, his wife and his son murdered. And he calls 911, and you could just hear the anguish in his voice. 
That's how you should read this psalm. That's the anguish at which the psalmist is crying out. But check this out. He's crying out because he's broken over his sin. He's not casual about it. He doesn't just feel bad about it and move on. He's desperate for God to change him. Let me just ask you, is that how you feel about your sin? When, when you sin, and we all do, we all get ourselves in this place to where, where we mess up. We all miss the mark. The question is not whether or not you sin. The question is, does your heart cry out in desperation to God to heal you? Or are you casual about it? I would tell you that that's probably the difference between those who see restoration in their life and those who don't. Listen to me. Sin, sin always always does this to us. It puts us in this position to where we either cry out to God or we don't. Y'all, sin always builds a wall between you and God because it makes you believe that you don't need God. And then it isolates you. And because the core of sin isn't just a bad thing is going on, listen, sin is a condition that causes us to do bad things. You hear that distinction there? A lot of us believe that sin is just doing bad things. That's not how the Bible describes sin. The Bible describes sin as a condition, and because we have this condition, like a terminal illness, we do bad things. And the problem is, is most of us just think that sin is breaking a bunch of rules, but sin is rebellion against God. It is literally the act of kicking God off the throne of our lives and putting ourselves on the throne. And in God's kingdom, there can only be one person on that throne. Y'all, the way that I think about sin is like this. It's S-I-N. It's me at the center. That is the essence of all sin. It's, it's me at the center. That's where you begin to sink. That's what happens is you begin to sink into despair because your primary issue is not self-identity or self-worth. Our primary issue is sin. Like Winston Churchill famously said, the story of human history is war. The difference, though, the crazy thing is our primary war, the one that isolates us, isn't against one another. The book of James, which we're going to talk about in the fall, is our primary war is against God. There's this enmity, as James says, going on inside of all of us that's wrestling for the throne of our own lives, so we're constantly at war within ourselves. And the reason why you feel so helpless, the reason why you feel so alone in your sin is because every time you sin, you cut yourself off from your primary source of joy. That's, that is the, the great lie of sin, is it makes you feel like you can't come into the presence of God, so you cut yourself off from the only source of joy that you'd ever have. You don't cry out from the depths, you run from him. See, God's not trying to ruin your life with a bunch of rules. God is trying to help you flourish and thrive in your life when you realize that, that all you really need to walk out of that is him. I hear people jokingly say, they say this stuff to me all the time. I can't get too close to you because if I do, I get struck by lightning. Wait, what? This idea, like, if I, if, I, if I have this sin in my life and I get close to something that they think is holy, which I'm like, dude, if you knew me, you'd be coming closer. Um, that's how the psalmist felt. That's what despair does to you. It puts you so low that you begin to even question your own self-worth. But check this out. He's so low that the only place he can look is up. 
See, sin might bring you low, but the amazing thing about God's grace is that it leads to repentance. When you look up, I've told you this story before about Peter. When Peter's sinking into water, we like to think that the story is about Peter, you know, he loses his faith in the New Testament. But really the story is not about Peter sinking. It's about the fact that as he's sinking, he looks up, you see the hand of God reaching down. That's the story of our life. If you will just look up, you'll see the hand of God reaching down. Y'all, that's the entire point of this psalm. It's not knowledge that melts the heart. It's knowing the grace and forgiveness of God that does. See, sin is the greatest deceiver in the entire world. It promises you happiness and it only drags you to the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) Think about what the bottom of the ocean feels like. And tell me if I'm describing what sin feels like. It's dark, isn't it? It's dark. And darkness is scary. I got four kids and they all like to sleep in bright lights. Because there's something ingrained in all of us that likes light. And that's what it feels like to sit in your sin. It feels like you're sitting there in nothing but your guilt and shame. And some of you know that feeling. Sometimes you just put your bed on your pillow at night, and it's just you, and you're the only person that knows it, and it eats you alive on the inside. It's the darkest place. And even if you try to cry out, like being at the bottom of the ocean, nobody's going to hear you, you feel like. Like you're in the bottom of a swimming pool trying to talk. Nobody on the surface can hear you. That's what it feels like when you're at the bottom of the ocean. So it's dark. But it's also quiet. The silence is deafening, isn't it? I think sometimes the reason why we fill ourselves with so much noise is because sitting in the silence just eats us away. That's what guilt and shame does. It eats at you. Y'all, you thought... You thought you could become callous. Like the affair that you had, you're the only one that knows and you'll just move on and get over with. The only problem is you are the one who knows. So you live with that guilt and that shame and it eats you away or the the, the shortcuts you took on your job or your taxes or the things you stole from Target. Y'all, sin is a liar. See, the problem is you can escape everyone in the world but you can't escape yourself, can you? Here's my question for you. What if, now chew on this for a second, what if it's the goodness of God that won't let you escape yourself? What if it's that eating away at you is actually God's goodness? What if God is allowing you to be eaten away on the inside because true freedom isn't found in suppressing yourself to all your feelings? True freedom is found in God. What if God is letting you sit in that so that you will actually look up like the psalmist did. Y'all, like I said, sin's a liar. When you finally start believing that, when you finally start getting that, that's that's when you can be delivered from it. Just one time never actually works. That girl sitting in the office laughing at your stupid jokes, it doesn't actually work. You're not that funny. And the reason why second and third marriages tend to have higher divorce rates, probably because it's not always your spouse's fault. Like sometimes we have to sit in the moment for a second for God to start doing something in our lives. Here's the hard truth. Sometimes God gives you what you want because it's the only way that you'll ever learn that it's not actually what you need. So sometimes God's just like, you know what? You want it, you want it, you don't need it, you don't need it, you know what? Take it. By the way, by the way, side note, that's the definition of hell. At some point, you keep saying, God, I don't want you in my life. God, I don't want you in my life. God, I don't want you in my life. And God's like, I'm so sorry, but okay. And that's what happens. 
It happens on a daily basis. Y'all, sometimes God allows us to get to the depth so that we can understand that the thing that we're craving won't satisfy us. Listen to it again. Out of the depth, the psalmist says, I cry to you. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my voice and my plea for mercy. You know what's crazy to me? The patience of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty quick to write people off. Like I live by this rule of thumb, give the benefit of the doubt. Give the benefit of the doubt. That's easy to do the first time or the second time. But over and over and over again, sometimes I'm just absolutely amazed by how quick God is to forgive us. Y'all, do you want to know what changes people's lives? It's not knowledge. I could sit here for the next 10 years and give you all the reasons that God exists. I can point you to some pretty amazing and incredible books that outline all the undeniable truths about God. Like N.T. Wright wrote a thousand-page book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ that if you'll read it, there's undeniable evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Or C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, whenever you go survey his life, the Oxford professor who was an atheist that came to faith in Jesus. Y'all, there are millions of volumes of books out there, and honestly, it'd be really hard to reject Jesus based on the evidence, and yet it happens all the time. Here's what changes lives. Unconditional forgiveness found in the gospel. See, there's something so powerful about the fact that no matter what you do, no matter how low you go, no matter what your life has done, you can still look up and God's mercy is there every day. If you will cry out to God, he will hear you. Listen, write these references down. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 1 through 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Daniel 9, 9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. And then Jeremiah 31, 34, I love this. It's the new covenant. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The most comforting reality of the Bible is the mercy of God. Here's what I want you to consider, though. Are you ready for this? What if it's God's mercy that allowed you to sit in the depths so that you could cry out to him? See, because here's what I know. You will never know that God is all you need until you realize that he's all that you have. You know, you've got to stop blaming God for all the ways that things didn't go your way, and you have to start seeing that maybe it's God's mercy that allows us to sink into our despair so that we could actually look up to him and worship and not look to our circumstances. I think, I think that's what God's doing here. He's making the psalmist know that it's not in his goodness, it's not in his morality, it's not in his ingenuity that saves him, but it's in God's mercy. Again, check out verse 3 again. Oh, if you, O oh Lord, if you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? You see what he's saying? God, if you counted sins, we'd all be doomed. The answer to this question is no one. No one. Stop kidding yourself. If you and I stood before God without the mercy and grace of God, we couldn't stand at all. Now, I'm just convinced. I'm convinced that you will never taste and see that the Lord is good until you realize just how utterly sinful we actually are. Listen, I'm not trying to discourage you, but you've got to wrap your head around this. You've got to wrap your head around the fact that God didn't save you because you deserved it. 
Let, let me say it this way. Let me step on your toes for a second. You aren't better than any other person who has ever lived in all of human history. And I know we like to go to like the Hitler thing and like, yeah, he's in a category of his own because he's just as wicked as they can be. But the reality is, is sin is, per, is the missing the mark of perfection. And according to God's grace and goodness, all of us have missed the mark of perfection, which puts us all in a category of sinner, which means that it's really, really hard to look down on anybody else when you get this. There's two things, two things that happen when you understand the grace of God. Number one is this, it melts your heart towards God. When you sit in the reality of the only reason that you and I can stand before God is because of God's mercy and forgiveness, that doesn't lead you to take advantage, it leads you to worship. I mean, it's like the, the, the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Was, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. That's what it does to you. Amazing grace. When you get to the end of yourself and you start to see the gospel properly, all you can do is look up to God in worship. Y'all, God accepts you and he forgives you because God came and lived your perfect life for you in your place. I want you to hear me clearly. Your sin separates you from God. But God's mercy and forgiveness is that he took your sin upon himself, nailed it to the cross, then he defeated your greatest enemy, death, by getting up out of the grave, and now he says, you know what, there's nothing you could do to separate yourself from me because I've already paid your punishment. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees Jesus. And that doesn't make you keep going. What it does is it makes you fall on your knees in worship. Number two, here's what it does. It creates grace towards other people. Guys, it's really hard to look down on other people when you get the gospel. See, the gospel is that you and I are utterly lost without Jesus, and Jesus forgave us. I don't know about you, but this psalm impacted my life so much. Listen, sometimes I sit back, and I'm like, God, why me? Why would you save me? Why would you change my life? I know my own heart. I know the family that I came from, and there's absolutely no reason that I'm justified before you. I think about my drug-addicted mom or my dad who was abusive growing up, and I think about some of my siblings that walked down that same path, and I can, I can cognitively build this case in my mind that I was better than them or I worked harder than them or I did something, but the reality is, is life is so much more complex than that. When you start seeing this, you realize that working harder than other people isn't always the reason why you are as successful as you are. You could have been born in a slum in Nairobi, Kenya, and it didn't really matter how hard you worked, you were never getting out, or you could have been a girl, little girl born in Afghanistan where you have the Taliban that rule your life, and you can't even learn past the age of eight years old. Y'all, sometimes we got to get out of our own way and stop this American like, ideology that we just worked harder than everybody. What if it's God's grace? What if it's God's grace that let us be where we are? And instead of taking advantage of that, we work hard because we understand that God has privileged us with such amazing grace that we want to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel. When you start seeing the world through the lens of grace, it's really hard to look down on other people because honestly, honestly, you don't even know what they're going through. When Allison was in the hospital, if you're new here, my wife spent a couple of months in the hospital and um, I had to take Addison 
to my daughter to her, um, her ballet recital, and she couldn't be there. Um, Allison couldn't. So we go to this ballet recital, and it's, it's amazing, and at the end of it, we're walking out, and I'm FaceTiming with Allison. And this lady comes up to me. I, I don't know her name, so let's just call her Karen. Um, and, and she looks at me and she says, just like a dad, always on his phone, missing the moment. I was like, you know what? I'm talking to my wife, who's actually in the hospital right now, and she's FaceTiming her little daughter. She walked away real quick, and I'm like, you don't know what people are going through. So instead of sitting in a, in, in a little throne of judgment, and what if we just gave people the benefit of the doubt because we realize that it's God's grace and his mercy that has put us where we are? That changes everything. It changes everything when you actually get that. I heard this quote the other day, and I've been chewing on it. It's, it's been so good. Listen, he says this. People will stop caring about what other people think about them when they realize just how little they do. Right? Like, we're busy. Monday through Saturday, you're not thinking about me, and I'm not thinking about you. We're just trying to get through the day. So stop caring about what other people think about you and just walk your life. Y'all, it's unconditional grace that leads you to not take advantage of other people. It leads you to worship. When you get that you did absolutely nothing to contribute to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary, you stop looking down on other people and you start looking up to God in worship. Verse 4. But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. There it is. Forgiveness leads to worship. That word feared there means revered. It's an, it's an awe. It's, it's worship. See, God forgives you so that you may fear him. See what he's saying? That, that's the condition. God forgives you that you may fear him, that you may worship him. Again, I can't get over the fact that God would save me. I can't stop thinking about just how unworthy I am, and that makes me look up and worship. That's what the gospel does. It heals you. It heals you. The psalmist, the psalmist didn't stay in his despair because he understood the forgiveness of God. He understood that no matter what he did or how bad it got, there was a God that forgave him. Do you understand that? Seriously, do you understand the gospel? Do you get that your eternal destiny without Jesus is awful? Does your life reflect a life that is shaped by forgiveness? Because I'm just convinced that you can't come face to face with the gospel and not be changed. You can't sit under the full weight of what it took for God to forgive you and not be changed. I heard this story last week, and it perfectly illustrates this. It goes like this. There was a Viking king around... 1100 AD, and I, I don't know if the story is true or not, but here's how it goes. There, he, was, he was a king over a small nation. He had a reputation for being the wisest king that had ever lived and the most loving king that had ever lived. He adored his people, and his country was happy because of it. But one day, he, he came out to address the nation, and he said, money is being taken from the treasury. Like, someone is stealing from me. He said, I know that I promised to take care of you, and I'll even take care of your greatest needs if you'll just come to me. If you will just come to me, I will forgive you, and I will take care of you, but you cannot keep stealing from me. That's sabotage. So a week goes by, and after the invitation went out, he comes back, and somebody keeps stealing money from him. 
And after the warning and after the offer of forgiveness, he, he looks and he says, somebody's still embezzling money from me. You can't do that. So I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to create a punishment. He says the punishment in those days were, were 10 lashes with a whip. He says, if you're stealing from me, you need to stop. Another week goes by and the king comes out a third time. And they're still stealing from him. So he's like, I'm going to have to double the punishment. Now it's going to be 20 lashes. And you need, you need to stop. You're sabotaging the kingdom. And it has to stop. So then, then somebody kept stealing money. And he comes out and he's like, God, it breaks my heart. But this can't keep going. So I'm going to have to double the punishment again to 40 lashes, which was essentially a death penalty. He says, please just stop. A couple days later, the thief was caught red-handed. And it turned out it was his mom. So the king, not knowing what to do, and everybody else worried, looks and he says, how can this king deal with this? He's the fairest king that's ever lived, so he can't be just and not punish his mom. And yet, he's the most loving king, and how can the most loving king ever punish his mom? So the day comes for his mom to be tried, and she's tried in front of court, and she's convicted of the punishment. They take her to the place where the criminals are, are put to be whipped, and, and they give the guard the whip, and, and he pulls back the whip, and the king says, hang on, just wait one second. I need to say something to my mom. He walks up to his mom as she's, as she's tied to this thing, and he grabs onto her, and he says, I love you. I love you so much. And he wraps his arms around her and hugs her as tight as he can. And he looks back at the guard and he says, now hit her. And the guard says, what do you, I can't. He says, I'm telling you, I don't really care what you do, but you start hitting her and you give her every lash that she needs. And for the next several minutes, he takes all 40 of those lashes in her place. Y'all, that's the gospel. See, that's the gospel. Jesus didn't just recklessly forgive you. We often say that grace is free. It's not free. It's free to you. It cost him everything. He essentially wrapped his arms around you to take your death penalty so that whenever he looked at you, he can grab you and say, Dan, you know I love you. I love you, and I love you so much that I can't just forgive you because that makes me an unjust judge, and that means that I'm awful. And yet I can't let you take the death penalty yourself, so I will take it in your place. Y'all, I'm just convinced that you can't understand that and not be changed. That's what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the entire world. You have a God who is just and loving, transcendent, holy, and personal, that he would do this in your place. See, it's impossible. It's impossible not to see movement in your life away from yourself into God when you understand the reality of the gospel. That's what changes the heart. That's what changed the psalmist's heart. If you really notice, if you look at the first three verses in this psalm, he essentially says this, Lord, hear me, Lord, help me, Lord, save me. It's essentially the same three things that all of us need to say in order to be saved. Lord, hear me, Lord, help me, Lord, save me. Y'all, this might be obvious, but the one thing the psalmist understood is that he couldn't save himself. He got himself into the depths. His sin entrapped him, and he's in a place of despair. Can I point out something really quickly that I think is fascinating? It's hard to see in your English translation of the Bible, so if you just grab your Hebrew text really quickly. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
Your English Bible actually helps, with, helps you with this. Look at verse 3. He says, Lord, twice. In your English Bible, the first time, it's all caps, and the second time, only the L is capitalized. Do you know why that is? He's actually using two different names for Lord in Hebrew. The first one, he says, O Lord, it's Yahweh. It's the, it's the covenantal name, the personal name of God. The second time, he uses the name Adonai, which is, actually means that you're a sovereign ruler in charge of everything. Here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, God, I recognize that you're personal enough to save me and yet big enough to take care of it. You're both at the same exact time, and that's why I cry out to you. That's who God is. I love the way Tim Keller said it. Tim Keller says, Jesus is the only king who, if you obtain him, will satisfy you, and if you reject him, will forgive you. Y'all, that's what makes him safe. That's what makes you able to go to him. He's personal and powerful. And one of the greatest lies of our generation is this idea of self-help. Like, you can't help yourself. You're the one that got yourself in this situation. It's not living your best life now or having a better version of me that will save you. What changes your heart is your need for God and understanding, Lord, hear me, Lord, help me, Lord, save me. God's grace and forgiveness is free to anyone who recognizes that they need it and cries out to God for it. So the psalmist says, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. If you haven't picked up on this yet, there's movement in this psalm. You see it? First, he's in the depths. He's at the lowest point. Then he cries out to the Lord and remembers the mercy and forgiveness of God. Then he waits on the Lord. And by the way, it's not a passive waiting. He waits like a watchman waits for the morning. Do you know how a watchman waits for the morning? With anticipation. Right? He's alert. He's expectant. The watchman doesn't fall asleep. That's how forgiveness for your soul works. Those who are forgiven, they wait on God. By the way, God does some really amazing things in the waiting. If you go back to the Old Testament, God continually makes the nation of Israel wait because, well, because instant gratification doesn't lead to worship. Think about it. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness before going into the promised land because they needed to realize that they didn't get themselves out of trouble. God did. Joseph. Joseph has a dream, and then he goes into prison, and he is enslaved, and it's not until years later that God makes his dream come to fruition. You have David. David, who was anointed by Samuel to be the king, and then he goes back to the sheepfold for seven years before actually going to the battlefield to fight Goliath. Y'all, so often we miss this because a paragraph break in our Bible tends to equal several years in real life. You just read right over it. And as you read over that period, there's seven to ten years going by. Here, here's what I'd say. That little white space in your Bible, that's the space that God does all the work in your life. Don't waste the white space of your life. One day, one day your story is going to be written, and the days are going to be long, and the years are going to be short. And it's in those long, sleepless days that God is forming you into the type of person that he can use. That's what he does with the psalmist. He's helping him recognize. He's helping him recognize that what he doesn't need is a different set of circumstances. What he needs is to face his eyes to God. Listen, don't waste that time. So he cries out the psalmist. Watch the movement. He cries out from the depths to the Lord. See, most of life is directional. It's not that God gives you an easy life. It's what do you do? Do you cry out when things don't go your way from the depths to the Lord? Too many of us, 
what I'd say is too many of us want an easy bake faith, right? When God's trying to make you like a pig on a green egg, it takes time. Ask Richard. He's always cooking something. It takes time to tenderize you. I just think that the harshness of life and the bitterness that we see in the Christian life is because we want an easy bake faith. That, that political polarization and lack of empathy comes from a microwaved faith. Do you know what we don't need? Watch this. What you need to know is instant fulfillment is the enemy to worship. I can tell you how many people I know that because of their talent, they got platformed far before they were ready. And because of their talent outpaced their character, it was a disaster. Y'all, it's in the waiting that God forms the character necessary for sustainable worship for a lifetime. I know I've said this a million times, but God is more worried about doing something in you than he does through you, and he can't do something through you until he's done something in you. So what if, what if instead of every time bad things seem to happen in our life, what if that, the next time we, we don't look to God and say, what are you doing or why are you doing it? What if we say, God, what are you teaching me? What are you teaching me? When the promotion doesn't come or the job doesn't come or you get sick or or you go through a situation like we did for the entire summer, what are you teaching me, God? What if you looked back at God with anticipation for what he's forming in you instead of blaming him for not giving you what you thought you needed? See, I'm convinced that this is the movement of this psalm. God let the psalmist hit the depths so that he would look up and recognize that it's the mercy of God that he needs. He doesn't need a change in circumstances. What he needs is to understand God's grace. And then... And then he made him wait because immediate gratification would have convinced him that he did it on his own. But after you exhaust every other resource and all there is is God, what you do at the end of that is you look up to him and worship. And I'm convinced that that's the only thing that would have led him to verse 7 and 8. O Israel, he says, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. Y'all, that's the pattern of life. It's so simple and yet so hard. Here's what I know. The people who have experienced the greatest grace in their lives are the people who can't stop talking about redemption. See, once the psalmist tasted and saw that the Lord was good, all he could do is scream out to everybody around him, Oh, Israel, Israel, see and hope in the Lord. Don't hope in your circumstances or human institutions or governments or even kings because they will fail you. He's no longer in the depths because he's tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and now he's on the mountaintops. By the way, if you look at your Bible, at the very beginning, here's what it says, Psalm 130, my soul waits for the Lord, a song of ascent. That, that idea there is it's, a, it's an ascent. It's a progression in life. It's what life should look like. You start in the depths, but as you put your eyes towards the Lord, he moves you in a position of worship, and that's the movement of this song. When you realize that God is there, you no longer sit drowning in your despair and your sin. Listen to me, City Church. There is steadfast love in the Lord. That means enduring, never-ending love. See, it's that picture here that God's love will outpace anything you've ever done wrong that changes your heart. 
and he will redeem you, according to this, from all of your iniquities. So what are you waiting for? What is keeping you from receiving the grace and mercy of God? Sin will lie to you. It will tell you that you will never be good enough or you're too far gone from God. And knowledge will lie to you to tell you that just knowing enough is enough. But the reality is, it's the same three things that the psalmist said that will save you your life too. Lord, hear me. I'm in my depths. Lord, save me. And Lord, heal me. Heal me. Maybe today is the day that you need to hear from God and to receive. Because there are too many of us, especially in the cultural south, that live in this bubble of knowledge without ever experiencing God's steadfast love. Listen, man. Jesus put on flesh to wrap his arms around you so that when you hit rock bottom, here's what you'll hear. There is steadfast love in the It doesn't really matter what you've done. Again, if you have children, you get this. There's nothing my kids could do to make me stop loving them. And imagine infinitely more how much God loves you. There's steadfast love in the Lord and plentiful redemption. He doesn't run out. He's not like, man, I used it all on Dustin and now I don't have any left for you. His redemption goes to the ends of the earth and it's waiting on you. So maybe, maybe just for a second, you can bow your head and let that, let that sink in for a second. Let that sink in that God doesn't just forgive you. God took your punishment upon himself. God doesn't just redeem you. He calls you into his family. He doesn't leave you in your despair. God is present the valley, and he's present on the mountaintop. And his invitation to you is, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my burden is light, and my yoke is easy. See, the invitation is, sit in the chair of faith. Receive the grace of God. Maybe your circumstances don't change, but your joy does. Father, would you help us? Would you help us now? Maybe there's somebody in this room that for the very first time needs to receive your grace. Maybe they've been sitting in this Christian bubble their entire life, and yet they've never, they've never sat. They know all the right words. They know what to say, but they've never actually received your grace and forgiveness by giving you the throne of their life. God, if that's anybody in this room right now, I pray that today would be the day that they would receive. And for all of us who do know, who have received, but yet we walk wandering around, God, would you remind us of your goodness and your grace? Would you help us like the psalmist to cry out from the depths? And would you hear our plea for mercy, I pray, in Jesus' name.